Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. It makes sense to start at the beginning with the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, the first of 66 that make up the whole Bible. So, Mike, uh, good to speak to you and to ask you, first of all, in a sentence, what is the book of Genesis about? Well, it's about what the word Genesis means. Genesis means beginnings. And this is a book that tells us about the beginnings of everything, of humanity, of creation, of God's relationship with people and his plan to fix what ends up going wrong. So there's 50 chapters. It's quite a big book. Uh, Give us just a bird's eye view before we kind of dive into any detail. Yeah, it is a big book. But you know what? It's also one of the most exciting books in the Bible and full of really great stories. So I suppose if I had to divide it into just a couple of sections, I, I would say Genesis 1 to 11 are all about the beginnings of everything. And then Genesis 12 to 50 are about the beginnings of a family that God is going to call and build from whom and through whom he will work out his plan for the whole of the human race. So as you're coming to the book for the perhaps for the first time or after a, a long while, chapter one, where does it begin? It's a bit like the famous song, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. It begins with nothing, when there is nothing other than God. And those grand and majestic opening words, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So immediately it establishes that there was a time when there was nothing other than God. And at some point he brought forth not just earth, which is the focus of the Bible story, obviously, in the story in Genesis, but brings forth the whole of creation. And we get sort of two accounts of that. Genesis 1 gives us a big sweep of creation, and that's almost like from from God's viewpoint. And then in chapter 2, he sort of goes back and says, let's look at that again, but this time putting human beings at the centre of that creation and seeing why it was all created. Uh, Neither of those are written in terms of modern science. It just doesn't address that issue. Science was not a known topic in those days. So while there are some Christians who would strongly argue for we must believe that this story happened in six days, which God is well able to do, there are others who would say that's not the purpose of it at all. It is not here to teach us science, but meaning. Because when you hear the creation-evolution debate, it seems a kind of either-or, black-and-white kind of discussion. Yes, it does, but I, but I think it's it's like straw men that are set up to knock down. On both sides, it has to be said. And I have many friends personally who are scientists, some of whom are professors at university uh, in, in topics like chemistry and physics and biology, who have no problems at all in following where the science leads them, but in also seeing a God who lies behind it all and the greatest scientist of all. So we don't need to conflict uh, between these two. And if people are really interested in that, well, there are lots of books that they could read about it. But for me, the main thing is it's almost like God's not bothered, you know. It doesn't really deal with the issue of how did this all come about? 
what Genesis 1 and 2 really are telling us why it came about, that there is a good God who is in his very nature relational and who wants to have relationship with people, not because he needs them, but there is something within him that is creative. You know, I often think an artist you know, bubbles up with creativity and suddenly splashes the paint on the canvas and this fantastic creation comes and that's what God is like. He, he is creative by his very nature. And there's that point comes when creation, the whole of it, all the planets are splashed onto creation. However he did it, Genesis is not concerned with it. It simply says God did it and God did it for a purpose. So it's helpful as you read, particularly these opening chapters, to kind of ask the, the right questions, not the how question, but the, the, the why question. Absolutely. Or I think you just end up trying to answer a question that Genesis was never really written to answer. The story goes on with the human race, as you say, beginning as well. And Adam and Eve, what's that showing us? What's that What's that? revealing. Just to set that in context, if we just rewind fractionally, all of this creation, the emphasis of, of Genesis 1 is that all of this creation is good. Each day is good. And the whole of it, we're told on the last day, is very good. If the bits are good, the totality is very good. And creation, therefore, is something to be looked after, an encouragement there for those of us who have got a passion for looking after the environment and a challenge to those of us who don't. But also it's good and so it can be enjoyed. Yes, it will be spoilt, we will see, and ruined by human sinfulness at times, but it is fundamentally good. This is a good creation. And Adam and Eve, whom you've just referred to, are, if you like, the crown of that creation. This is this is the cherry on the cake. God has made all of this creation and it is fantastic and it is good. And he makes human beings. Why? Well, we're told that he makes them in his image. Now, that doesn't mean they look like him physically, but it means that there is some dimension of humanity that reflects God, that connects with God, that is always designed to connect with him. That's why people very often are searching for meaning in life and feel these holes in the middle because that's, that's the God bit. That's your image of God bit that's not satisfied until you discover God as your father through Jesus. So the Bible is sort of saying that we're related to God in some way. Related not in the sort of human sense, of course, that can be seen in some of the primitive pagan religions, the offspring of the gods. It's not that. We are related spiritually because we are created in his image. We are created to be like him and to know him and to get excited by what he gets excited about and actually to hate what he hates, the stuff that goes wrong. And so Adam and Eve are created as specified here as the first of the human race to to have relationship with God, I think we would put it. And we, we actually see that as um, the story unfolds because God makes, although the whole of creation is beautiful, there's one part that's even more special, the Garden of Eden. 
which is a beautiful garden where he puts Adam and Eve to to care for it, to look after it on his behalf. And it's the place where God comes to meet with them. In chapter three, it's got this image of God walking there in the cool of the day. Now, anyone who's been in the Middle East will know after the fierce heat, the cool of the day is a precious time. It's the time when you go, ah, that feels really nice. (laughs) And that picture of when God is there, there is something within us that's designed to say, oh, yeah. This is what I was made for. And that's how Adam and Eve were originally made and how human beings still today are designed to be, to have that relationship with God who made all things good and to say, yes, that's what I was made for. Now, of course, in reality, we know that life isn't as perfect as that. So where did it all go wrong, according to Genesis? Well, Genesis chapter 3 starts to outline how that went wrong. And I suppose we could say it it all comes down to wrong choices. And we can still see that in the world today, can't we? People make wrong choices that have terrible results. Sometimes not just for them, but their kids' life, their nation's life, whatever it might be. And in Genesis 3, we get this story of one of God's creatures who had turned against God for some reason, the serpent. Now, he's not called Satan at this point, though we discover later in the Bible this is a creature that Satan certainly was using. And this serpent creature comes along and says to Eve, first of all, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden. It's interesting, he's twisted. First of all, did God really say, how unreasonable of God, how unreasonable that God should say there are things you shouldn't do in life. Still a view that's held by many people today. A God in heaven who would tell you what's good and not good. Did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? And she then makes the mistake of getting into conversation with him and saying, oh, well, God did say we could eat from any tree, but he did say you mustn't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden or even touch it. Oh, no, he hadn't said that. Look back in chapter two. She's adding to what God said, a bit of legalism coming in there. Don't touch it even or you will die. And he says, nah, you won't die. God's just frightened that you will become like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. And he persuades her to eat of this fruit, and she in turn persuades Adam to eat of this fruit. By the way, do note when you read chapter 3 that she gave the fruit to Adam who was with her. The blessed guy was standing there all along watching all this happen, didn't open his mouth once, and yet he'd been the one back in chapter 2 that God had given this instruction to not her, which is why, by the way, the Bible always refers back to this as being the sin of Adam rather than the sin of Eve, even though she took the fruit first and then gave to him. He was the one responsible. He was the one who'd been given the command. He was the one who stood by and said nothing. And at that moment, it says their eyes were opened. And the first thing they understand is that they're naked and they suddenly feel ashamed by this and make themselves clothes out of leaves from trees, fig leaves, to to cover themselves up. It's like they are starting 
to see things that they hadn't seen before, and it wasn't good. And this is what in Christian theology is called the fall, when the human race fell from that position God had put them in, and now something in their humanity is spoiled and ruined and the relationship is broken. So when God comes along later in the chapter and says, you know, did you eat that fruit, you know, to Adam? And Adam says, well, I did, but it was the woman you gave me. And the, he says, did you give it? And she said, well, I did, but it was the serpent you made. Notice the blame shifting. Mm. This will be a theme that continues in many of the stories in the Bible when people are confronted with sin and still happens today. It wasn't my fault. It was them. It was it. And we're going to see in this story that God can't deal with that. It's only when we face up to our sin, which Adam and Eve didn't do. And as a result, they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. Now, I find this interesting because they're expelled from the Garden of Eden into what? The still beautiful world that God has made, but that's going to go wrong now because of the wrong choices that they have made. It's as if by that wrong choice, they've released something within themselves that will now outwork. So as readers read through to the end of chapter 11, what they will find is humanity at its best and at its worst. I was going to say, because beyond Adam and Eve and their descendants, we have the story of Noah and the flood. What's the connection? The connection there is that as the human race developed and people started doing both good and evil, the evil had a way of winning over, which so often happens today, doesn't it? And triumphing, the world becoming so evil that actually there's a point where it says that God says, I'm sorry that I made the human race. I mean, you feel the pain in God's heart there as he says, I'm sorry that I sent the human race. And so he sends a flood to wipe out the developing human race that he has formed, except for one man and his family, and that man is Noah. And God says to Noah, uh, so this is from chapter 6 onwards in Genesis, make a big ark. It was simply really a big floating wooden box with three floors. Take animal life, take your family in, because I'm going to send a great flood uh, and we're going to start all over again. And God wipes out the human race. The first time we're sort of really introduced into the in the Bible to the idea that there is such a thing as judgment, that sin has consequences, that God does not just sit in heaven saying, oh, well, there they are. I know you meant well, really. Sin has inevitable consequences. You've used the word sin a few times. Could we equate that to selfishness? I think we could, and it's interesting that the the word sin doesn't occur in those early chapters of Genesis. It's about wrong choice. It's about selfish choice. It's about doing what I want rather than what God, who knows best, wants. And still today, for many people, the idea of there being a supreme being who knows better than you and who could tell you, who has any right to tell you what to do, is anathema. And that is the very heart of sin, thinking I know best, making selfish choices. Because as the story goes on, we've got the Tower of Babel, I believe. Is that linked to this as well? Yes. When Noah and his family eventually come out of the ark, and by the way, as you read the story, you'll see that they're in the ark for around about a year. The, the rain comes down only for 40 days, but they're in the ark for about a year. 
we find that then as they come out of the ark and people begin to populate the earth again, his descendants, that there's a group of people as it spreads who decide that they know better than God, who build this great tower of Babel. It's what we now would call a ziggurat, a temple tower. Come, let us build a a tower for ourselves that will reach to the heavens. Now, there's in a sense an expression of pride, but it's also a sense of a ziggurat was seen as as a tower, not so much for you to go up as the gods to come down. God may have left us, but we can manipulate him. We can force him to come down and bend God to our will. There's the arrogance of that. And so God puts uh, an end to that by simply saying, okay, if you're all getting together and that's what you're about, we'll scatter you. And so God scatters them from the Tower of Babel, confuses their speech, first of all, So they can't understand one another. Here's the development of language and the different languages of the world. And God scatters them. And it's interesting that that really has been God's plan. He said to Adam and Eve that he'd wanted them to fill the whole earth. And here a human being saying, no, I like it here. I'm not moving from here. I can build a tower here and bring you down here to me, God. So this has set the scene for the story that will unfold in the rest of Genesis, a a good creation, a good God, good beginnings, but selfish choices constantly leading to people trying to thwart what God had wanted to do. And I think you said that from now on, from chapter 12 towards the end of Genesis, it's like zooming in on, on one particular family. Yes, and the most unlikely of families as well, because what does God do when he wants to build a family of faith that will spread and ultimately fill the whole earth? Who does he choose? This 80-year-old couple who he calls. Uh, Abraham came from a what looks like a reasonably wealthy nomadic family uh, at a place called uh, Ur in Mesopotamia, in what we would see as modern Iran, Iraq, in that area of the Middle East today, and breaks into his life and says to him, Abraham, I'm calling you and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. Now, moving on for a semi-nomadic family is no big deal. The big deal here is, but I'm not going to tell you yet, I will lead you to it. And I'm going to take you to a land and Abraham, through you, I am going to build a family of faith that will ultimately fill the whole earth. He says, I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your your name famous and you will be a blessing to all the nations. So it's going to be from this one man, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And we, as the story unfolds, we discover the problems they have. They can't have kids, but God miraculously gives them a child, the child Isaac, through whom the story will then continue. Interesting. We were talking about choice just now, but this is God choosing this family for good purposes. It is. And we will see this idea of choice coming out again and again in Genesis and in the Bible. But let us not think this choice is a, a sort of dip, 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 my blue ship. Yeah, not you. This is choice for purpose. And Abraham is chosen for this purpose of 
building this family. Notice there's no mention of Jesus at this point in the story, though Jesus will come from this family. Abraham doesn't know that at the moment. But he's told he's going to have a growing family. He's going to have a place that he can call his own, which will become known as Canaan and ultimately as Israel. But that is not the end of the story. The story is not going to be about Israel simply, though it will be through Israel. It's a story through Israel for the whole world, building a family of faith that will build the whole world that starts with a barren man. Abraham's descendants, you mentioned, would then be Isaac and, uh, and Jacob. Just, just talk us through how they fit into this picture. Isaac comes into the story. He finds a wife through sending a servant back to the, the home country of Mesopotamia where he had come from. And there's a, a lovely story there where the servant is led by God through a, 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 almost a, oh, and that just act, happened to be, but it wasn't. God was at work. And he finds this beautiful wife, Rebecca, whom he is able to take to himself. Uh, he actually ends up marrying his father's great niece. It's all within the family there. Rebecca is also barren and they have to depend on God. It's interesting. This theme of barrenness comes out again and again, but eventually she will have twins, Esau, the older one, and Jacob, the one born second. But choice again, God says, I've chosen Jacob to be the leader, not Esau. The older one. Who was the older one and who you would have expected to be the leader. But we'll see in these stories, God choosing, not callously. In fact, God has plans for the other part of the family, descended through Ishmael. He says he will bless them as well. But chosen for the purpose of carrying this story of fixing what has gone wrong, fixing it and making it right. It will be through Abraham, through Isaac, then through the second born, Jacob. And now the story really starts to unfold because what had God promised Abraham? He promised him a growing family. Suddenly we start to see that happening because Jacob will end up having 12 sons. And those 12 sons will become the founding fathers of what will become the 12 tribes of Israel. So what we're seeing through these early chapters is God fulfilling that promise of providing a family. And there are some great stories on the way. We've not got time to look at them all. They're great stories of Jacob having encounters with God and visions with God, of angels going up and down ladders and promises made to him reaffirming the promise made to Abraham and so on. So some great stories here, but the overview is here is God doing what he promised, growing a family from Abraham through whom his plan is going to come to pass. So Jacob has 12 sons. Does Genesis focus in on one in particular? Yes, it does. And as far as his brothers was concerned, he was a real pain in the butt. <laughs> and that was Joseph whose story starts in chapter 37 of Genesis. And we discover that Joseph was born in his mum and dad's old age. So, you know, he was probably one of the spoilt ones. He wasn't the youngest, Benjamin was, but he was certainly uh, spoilt and favoured and, and dad gave him a special coloured robe. Remember, robes would have been very simple in those days, but he gets this multicoloured 
Technicolor Dreamcoat, as Andrew Lloyd uh. Webber would make it one day in, in his musical. But he had this gift of having dreams that had meanings from God. Now, in the ancient world, dreams were seen as being one of the main ways that God, or if you were a pagan, the gods spoke to you. So dreams were very, very important. And uh, basically, Joseph became rather too full of himself um, at some dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. And he goes to them and says, hey, guys, I had this great dream last night. There were all these sheaves of wheat representing you lot. And you all bowed down to me as the greatest sheaf of all. Isn't that great? And of course, the brothers didn't think it was great at all. And they end up, well, they want to kill him. But at Benjamin's persuasion, end up instead selling him to passing slave traders who were on their way to Egypt. So suddenly this guy who, it looks like the story is going to focus around, looks like he's out the story. He's no longer in Canaan. He's taken off to Egypt to be a slave. And as I flick through Genesis, what, chapters 37 to 50 are dedicated to Joseph's story. So I've got a chunk of Genesis is his story. But, but I mean, is it just a great story? Well, it is a great story without a doubt. It's, you know, one of the exciting sort of stints, episodes in the Bible. You know, the Bible is made up of lots of little stories, but each of those stories feeds into a bigger story. And the story that we get in these chapters is that basically wherever Joseph goes, he ends up getting blessed. Why? Because he's got God's favour and he's still carrying God's promise that was given way back to Abraham. So quick summary here, he, he ends up being sold into slavery to this guy called Potiphar, who's a leading officer in Pharaoh's army, and he's really favoured there. He does so well in the house that he becomes like the number one in the house. But his wife takes a bit of a shine to him, tries to seduce him. He's too godly for that. He escapes, but his wife grabs his robe. She then runs to her husband and says, look what I've got. Look what Joseph just did to me. He tried to abuse me. And he's thrown into jail. So he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down again. There in the jail, he meets a baker and a cupbearer, a pharaoh who've fallen foul of pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He ends up interpreting their dreams. They come exactly true. The cupbearer is restored. The baker has his head chopped off. And they, the cupbearer uh, had been told by Joseph, you know, when these dreams come to pass, please remember me, won't you? And, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll absolutely remember you. But they don't remember him at all. And some years pass by. So there's Joseph still languishing in the jail. When Pharaoh has a dream that none of his dream interpreters can interpret. And suddenly at that point, the cupbearer bangs his head and says, blow me or wherever the Egyptian equivalent of that would have been. Blow me, your majesty. There's a guy I met in jail when you were mad with me that time, you remember, and you put me in jail for a while. And he interpreted our dreams and they came exactly true. I think he could interpret your dream. So they send for Joseph, he's given a bath, a shower, treated, put nice clothes on, brought in. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams, which says there's famine coming to this land. You need to prepare for it. You need someone wise. And Pharaoh says, well, who's the wisest guy around here but you? And suddenly 
Joseph is elevated again to now become Pharaoh's right-hand man to help make provision so that Egypt can get through its time of famine by storing up food. So he's had these up, down, up, down. And, you know, if you put yourself, when you're reading these stories, maybe put yourself in Joseph's position. What would you be thinking? God, what are you doing? I I, I thought you'd just rescued me. Now I'm back in jail again. God, what are you doing? And yet something fantastic is working out because as we get to the end of these chapters, a famine comes to Canaan where his old family is and the brothers are sent down by dad to come and get grain from Egypt. Who's in charge of all the grain? Joseph is, but they don't recognise him. Why? Well, one, years have passed. Two, they thought he was probably dead by now. Three, he's dressed like an Egyptian. And he plays them along a little. Really good part of the story this where he plays them along and pretends he doesn't know them and uh, has a little ploy with them whereby his younger brother Benjamin is, is kept almost as a, a pledge for a while to make sure that they're honest. And to cut a long story short, he ends up eventually revealing himself to them and saying, guys, it's me, Joseph. And at that point, you know, you can imagine the brothers going, ah, (laughs) this is the end. But there is this fantastic story because he is able now to bring not just them, but he says, go back and get the father, get the whole family. And this huge growing family is now brought down to the safety of Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, Egypt had the Nile and its annual floods. So there was always a harvest to be found in Egypt, Mm. even in difficult times. And while his brothers are terrified that he will now take vengeance on them, there's this verse right at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, where he says to them, listen, guys, don't worry. You intended to harm me, but God intended this for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Wow. You intended to harm me but God intended it for good. In passing, by the way, when we know God with us, bad stuff might come our way. Some people might even send bad stuff our way. But when we have God with us, like Joseph, we can see it turned around and God bringing something good out, not just for us, but for his bigger plan as well. What would you say is the reason for reading Genesis? I would say that Genesis helps us to know about God and his plan. It helps us to know there is a God, which some people today are uncertain about, but there is a God. This God is good. He has good plans for this earth that people have messed up, as any of us can see today. And he has good plans for every life if we will say, God, here I am, please use me. Now, Abraham didn't stand there and say to God, please use me, God. God called him out of the blue, broke into his life, as still often happens with people today. But I would say, if you're looking for God, this is a book that tells you there is a God. He is a good God. He has good plans 
And no matter what mess your life might have been in thus far, just like Joseph's life's got in a mess, like Jacob's life got in a mess, we didn't touch on some of the things that went wrong in his life, but they did. But here is a good God with a good plan who, if we will put our lives into his hands and say, God, I will trust you, obey you and do what you say, there is always a fantastic outcome, not just for us, but he can draw us into his big plan of what he is doing with the whole world and where he is taking this thing. And that must surely be one of the most exciting stories of all. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Tavener. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.